What is up? I am Evan Lovett, and welcome to my new podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett. This is an Odyssey original brought to you by my company, In a Minute Media, coming to you live from my studio in the heart of my favorite city in the world, Los Angeles, California. Let's get into it. What is up? We made it to episode number two. To those that listened to the first episode, thank you. And thank you for sticking around for episode number two of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. We are at the I Am Studio in the heart of Los Angeles. I have my drink lined up, and this is where we're really going to be getting into the podcast. Now look, we have a structure, we have a format, but it's always going to be evolving. And I want to come out of the gates with a few good segments that we're going to have fun with. And I want to be clear, I'm going to want your feedback We're going to make this interactive, so find me on socials, LA in a minute, on all of them. Send me a DM. I always respond. I'm a dude with some OCD, and I like reaching out to people and hearing from people, so I will respond to every single DM. Give me your thoughts on how the show went. Let me know how we can improve. Let me know if you like it. Honestly, let me know if you don't. That's probably more important. Constructive criticism or just criticism. Either way. Listen, I want to know both sides. But I will say this, if you write me a podcast review, positive only, I need to get out there in the algorithm. But seriously, in a minute with Evan Lovett, thank you for being here. Last but not least, let's get into it. Okay, so this first segment I like to call what I learned this week. And now what I learned, I love this. My friend says I write a term paper every night because I try to produce like five to six fresh episodes of LA in a minute every week. And I guess it's not dissimilar to doing that kind of research. But look, I find a topic, I dive into it. I'm relentlessly curious, right? So I want to do this research. I'm excited about this research. And there's a lot of like boring stuff on there. I try to strip that down, right? But that's the process that takes the hard work. It's not doing the research, right? I'm spending six to eight hours per piece researching, scripting, editing, filming, etc. But unearthing those nuggets, man, (laughs) to quote the Robin Williams character in Good Will Hunting, that's the good stuff. And that's what I learned. And I want to be able to uh, share that. And more importantly, I want to know what you learned. So there's going to be a feature every week. I'm going to put up a a post on my social media. Whenever I put up a podcast, I'm going to say, what did you learn this week? Drop a comment. Tell me what you learned this week that you didn't know last week. And it doesn't count if it came from LA in a minute, but I'm going to do some homework, some verification and some research, and I'll drop your name as a thank you. I think this is a fun way to engage together and keep this a two way street. So what did I learn this week? Okay. So I did an episode on Paul Revere Williams, the famous architect, Paul Williams, right? He did the renovation and expansion of the Beverly Hills Hotel. If you've ever seen Pretty Woman, he did the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. You know that theme building, it's called it LAX. It looks like a spider. I used to think it looked like an alien spaceship. It's, it's crazy, but so memorable and indelible architecture. Paul Williams did that. He did buildings all over the world. Uh, Palm Springs, he did Frank Sinatra's house. Um, he did buildings as far as Iowa, Medellin, Colombia. So, I mean, this guy is legendary and he was also black. 
He was the first African-American architect included in the American Society of Architects. And this is early 20th century when the United States was still pretty damn racist, right? So that was a breakthrough. But what's really amazing is that Paul Williams did all of this design, right? He was a master draftsman, a master architect. And when he'd meet with clients and he'd have to do drawings and revisions and explain these drawings. And now, if you've ever seen architectural drawings, they are complex. They are works of art in and of themselves. And this is before the days of computers, of programs, of CAD and all that stuff. And it's very detail-oriented. So when he would meet with his clients, most of whom were white, he wasn't allowed to sit on the same side of the table. So what he did, what Paul Williams did was learn how to draw upside down. He had to do these architectural drawings and revisions across the table and in front of his clients who would hire him, but wouldn't let him in their houses. So, I mean, that fact just blew me away. I mean, listen, try to write your name upside down. This is just standard printing. Just try to write your name upside down. It is difficult. Now try to draw try to draw a house. It's amazing what this guy accomplished with that set of circumstances. I mean, Paul Paul Williams legend. That is amazing. Let me know what you think about that. And again, when I dropped the post this week, you let me know what you learned cuz I love this. I mean, this is what fires me up. This is my fuel. So I mean, I really want to talk about this and just know what you learned and let's get get you the shout out. So get this. I mean, that's going to be the name of the segment, but for real, get this. I've been doing LA in a minute for more than a year. Haven't even scratched the surface of Los Angeles. There's so much to cover. People, places, things, flora, fauna. I'm the son of LA. But here's something nobody else knows. I'm actually the stepson of another city. My dad, as I mentioned before, he was a boxing manager. This is about the 80s, early 90s. Him and his brother had a, an organization called Jabs. It was four of them. Jackson, Art, Ben, Stu. My dad was Stu Stewart. Art was his brother. Other two guys were, were financiers. But my dad was the manager. My uncle was the trainer. From about 83 till my uncle passed away in 97, they had a stable of fighters. So I was in Vegas constantly, right? Every month going back and forth. Um... My dad introduced me to Don King, Marvin Hagler, Tommy Hearns, um, the grand opening of the Mirage Hotel, 1989. I hung out with Mike Tyson. Here's this little kid hanging out with the uh, Iron Mike, the baddest man on the planet. And guess what? He was a sweetheart. We took pictures. He had a conversation. It was awesome, right? So I grew up going to Vegas, all around Vegas, um, you know, every hotel, Caesars was king at the time, right? Especially during fights. I mean, the world would stop for these championship fights. This is the glory days of boxing, right? But it was during a transitional phase uh, during Vegas's um, uh, evolution, let's call it. And, and by the way, my dad's best fighter or his most known fighter was Mia St. John. Not sure if any of you remember her. She was on the cover of Playboy magazine as a quote unquote knockout. Um, she was a very attractive person, but also one hell of a fighter. I mean, this is before Christy Martin. I think she ended up fighting Christy Martin after 
Don King stole her away uh, from Jabs Boxing from my dad and my uncle. But that's a whole nother story. But me and St. John was probably the biggest and most successful fighter. So we were on a lot of good cards. So I got to see, you know, the uh, Tropicana, the Stardust, the Sahara. I mean, this is like classic Vegas. But when Vegas was dwindling and then flash forward to when the Mirage opened. And the Mirage, which, by the way, was a Steve Wynn Hotel. I believe it was his first hotel in Vegas. The Mirage changed everything in Vegas, right? The volcano, the white tigers. I remember the arcade just blew all the other arcades away. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Circus Circus for a kid, especially in the 80s, there was no place like it. My dad, well, my parents would give me like 50 bucks and 50 bucks for a kid in the 80s. I'd spend eight hours there. No parental supervision, just running around playing those games. My favorite one was that horses where you make the balls into the into the hole. You either get to move them three, two, or one space in the horse move. But anyway, circus, circus. But this arcade at Mirage was above and beyond anything I'd seen. I mean, this was the new Vegas, and it was representative of the new era of Vegas. Because you got to remember, during the 80s, it was still about $5.99 buffets, $2.99 steak and eggs, 99 shrimp cocktail. There was a place called the Westward Ho on the Strip that served an 18-inch hot dog for 99 cents. So this is what we were talking about is Vegas, look, it had that seedy undertone and it was the post-Sinatra era, so it was kind of in this transition. And yes, Mirage was the hotel that changed everything. But here's the thing that always got me intrigued because my dad would take me around, like I said, and Tropicana had this history of Vegas museum. Now, as a kid, you know, history museum, it was cool, but I wasn't like that into it. But as I got older, I'm starting to think, I'm like, how the hell is there this city in the middle of the Mojave Desert, right? If you've been there during the summer, you know it. Pools, pool parties, 120 degrees like it's nothing. But Vegas can get in the 130s. And in fact, 134, it's the third highest temperature recorded on the planet Earth. How the hell, who the hell decided a city should be in Las Vegas? So I had to look into it. So get this, the population of Vegas in 1900 was only 50 people, okay? So it, it wasn't supposed to be a city. It is a very new city, and now we're talking Vegas is the 25th most populated city in the United States. That is a short period of time. How did that happen? Well, here's how. Real quick, the Morgans, the Mormons, maybe some of them are named Morgan, the Mormons tried to start Vegas in the 1850s. They wanted to be a farming town. You know, they're up in Utah. It didn't work. It's just too hot, right? So all of a sudden, Senator Clark of Montana had the idea to make Vegas a watering station right in between Salt Lake City and Los Angeles. Still didn't move much. Some farms did pop up. It was able to be irrigated. But what really happened was when they made a railway station. Senator Clark made a railway station and started selling out subdivisions in what is now downtown. And all of a sudden, the city started forming, right? It was still in the middle of the desert. It was still miserable. So the workers, who are mostly male, <clears throat> what did they want to do? I wanted to gamble. The Golden Gate Hotel opens up in 1905. This was the first casino in Vegas. And so Vegas started popping a little bit. But, the, but Nevada, the state of Nevada, outlawed gambling in 1910. 
Now check this out. So, you know, you outlaw gambling, you're right back to this desert town. Sure, there's water now, but it's not as exciting. So for the next 20 years, there's some underground card clubs, stuff like that. And I'm thinking back, who, who would want to be in this city? Nobody. So it didn't, there wasn't a lot of growth. But the Boulder Dam, now known as the Hoover Dam, in the 1930s changed everything. Workers started coming in by the bus load, by the train load. And again, it's all males. So guess who capitalizes, right? The, again, the, the gambling folk, right? They, they push these card rooms. They push these showgirl things. And the legislature of Nevada is like, look, gambling is how we are going to make this economy churn. So they legalized it in 1931. The Northern Club, first of the modern casinos in Vegas. And then what's funny, there was still no strip. There was still no strip. When you go to Vegas, when I go to Vegas, what do you do? You spend time on the strip. Like, sure, downtown's cool and like Henderson has developed all this kind of stuff. But man, it's all about the strip. The first hotel was the El Rancho Hotel in 1941. And you know what it was known for? That's right. It's buffet. And that's how the strip started. The El Rancho Hotel and its buffet were the main calling cards for the strip, right? Finally, you know, you got Bugsy Siegel, Meyer Lansky. They opened the Flamingo and then the modern era started. And then Vegas became Vegas. Frank Sinatra, Rat Pack, all the hotels that we know pop up. And my parents, my dad used to tell me how he would go when he was a kid. And it's funny because Vegas back then, it was, you know, the outdoor pools and the show. You go and see Frank or the Rat Pack or whoever at night. And then you just chill. Um, you eat at the buffet in the morning, get your, get your uh, shrimp cocktail during the afternoon. And it was basically like that. Yeah. I'd have championship fights, but that was Vegas until the Mirage came in. Okay. And then from that moment forward, Vegas just kept building and it built and it built. And I was there. It's cool. All these themed hotels started coming. MGM Grand, New York, New York. Paris, Bellagio, the Aladdin. Who remembers the Aladdin? I, I remember this hotel based on like a genie theme. And I remember it always being kind of confusing and not laid out well. And lo and behold, that one closed. That was one of the first like mega resorts to close on the strip. But the strip just kept churning ahead. And here's the cool thing. <clears throat> this is finally when I'm getting older. <laughs> so I'm starting to go to clubs, right? I got my fake ID. We're going, we're chilling, me and my boys. And the clubs back then, I remember this. They were off the strip, which sounds crazy now. If you've been to Vegas recently, off the strip to go to a club, come on. But it was this club called The Beach, where it'd be wild. They'd have foam parties, stuff like that. Utopia was the first like after hours dance club. And it was crazy. It was dope. And then this little place called Dre's opened. Also, off the strip. Actually, I think Dre's was in a place called the Barbary Coast, but the Barbary Coast was again that old school casino. It was such a juxtaposition. It didn't make sense because here's this after hours club with these dope underground DJs and it's like at the Barbary Coast, but that's kind of what started ushering in that era of Vegas. And here's why that's important, right? In the late 90s and early 2000s, you're starting to see this transition because again, boxing died out. Sure, UFC, MMA, all that stuff. But it used to be the boxing events would bring everybody to Vegas. But now all of a sudden, 
these bigger hotels, these bigger resorts were getting wise to what was really going on in Vegas. And they're seeing the influx of young people. Young people are always the future, right? I don't care where you are on the globe. Young people are going to determine the course of the future. That's just how the world works. Old people die off, young people take over, right? So seeing these young people, myself included, going to these clubs. And now all of a sudden, you're starting to get rum jungle at Mandalay Bay. You're getting raw at the Luxor, RA, by the way, not R-A-W, Studio 54 at MGM Grand. And man, this is right in my prime. So we're going to these clubs. And look, I'm not going to bullshit. I was not the proverbial ladies man, right? I'm, I was always more of a relationship. I'm a talker, right? I wasn't the guy who was like, I'm going to hit on tricks and take this girl back. But I was there for the fun, for the energy, for the love. And my boys would get with people and like there's a lot of like hooking up and fun going on, some illicit uh, behavior the after, after hours. But it was fun and it was energy and it was that buzz that you get when you're in Vegas, right? And I'm watching this knowing that when I was growing up, Vegas was the land of the shrimp cocktail and the Westward Ho 18-inch hot dog that would make you feel nasty for 48 hours after you ate it. But you were still proud and telling your boys, yo, I crushed two of those. So we're going to these clubs, Rum Jungle, Raw Studio 54. And all of a sudden, you got the Rio for a minute was hot off the strip. The Palms was hot with their Playboy Club. And then one club opened that just pushed Vegas into where it is now. It morphed Vegas. We're talking about the Hard Rock Hotel. Also off the strip, formerly Hard Rock Cafe. I think in, the, in, in like a, a Harrah's or, or a Harvey's or something like that. But it turned into the Hard Rock Hotel, and they had a Sunday pool party called Rehab. <laughs> and man, let me tell you, this is like the, the early 2000s to 2010. This changed the vibe once again, where it was the clubbing during the day and people sticking around on Sunday, which turned into Monday. And get this, from a Vegas perspective, the math changed because now you're having this huge Revenue coming in Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And if you've bought a table or a cabana or even just drinks in Vegas, Vegas was the first place I paid 20 bucks for a cocktail. You know, now, dang, dude, go to Hollywood, go to New York, whatever. That's that's the going rate. But I remember I was paying 20 bucks for a cocktail in Vegas when they were eight bucks, 10 bucks locally. But that money was rolling in and the smart people, the wins and whatnot who own the hotels realized the club was the thing. You started getting hotels like the Cosmopolitan, which by the way is my favorite. I call the Cosmo my second home. Um, <laughs> who do I love that place? I mean, everything from Secret Pizza to Hattie B's to just the Marquee. I mean, the vibe in there. It's, it's like classy, chic, chandelier bar. It's so fun. But that, that became the model, right? Where Vegas became lifestyle. The win, the encore, so nice. Not necessarily themed. Even like Bellagio, which is known as this nice hotel with their fountains and stuff. It's a theme and there's a little bit of corniness to that, right? Like, I don't need to tell you about the ceiling at the Paris that's painted, you know? Like, I like it, but it's cornball. But the Cosmo was just slick and it was stylish and it was cool and win and encore. Up to upgraded versions of that. So, I mean, Vegas, seeing that history, seeing that evolution, that's something that's so meaningful to me. And I kind of, I'm, I'm proud of Vegas because aside from Los Angeles, Vegas is the only city that's 
the metropolis that's really developed from nothing to something amazing in the 20th century. And now, you know, maybe I'm no longer the stepson of Vegas. Maybe now I'm, I'm married to LA and Vegas is my mistress, right? I mean, I just love getting down there and it's so much fun. And knowing that history, knowing that evolution, that's something that just tickles me to see every single day. But unfortunately, I'm not in Vegas every day. I'm right here in reality. And real stuff happens. And that's the stuff that I need to get off my chest. Now look, told you I'd be getting into the personal details of my life. I'm going to call this segment the In a Minute Therapy Session. <laughs> you guys are saving me a couple hundred bucks a week right here. Look, I'm going to talk to you instead of paying for a therapist. So here we go. Listen, my wife doesn't even know I'm talking about this. <laughs> Probably going to have to give her a little bit of heads up before it airs. But here's what happened. A couple nights ago, we were at this place called Sharky's. Sharky's is this very cool kind of organic Mexican. Doesn't doesn't claim to be authentic Mexican, but it's good quality food and it's organic and it's a great LA place. I mean, that's a great LA story. I might do an episode on that down the road. But it's not about Sharky's. We were at Sharky's and we order our food, get to the table. Food comes to the table. Now we're digging in. It's me, my wife, my nine-year-old son. And right as we're digging in, this dude who was in the booth behind us, and I, I saw him when I was sitting down. And there's three dudes. One of them gets up and it's like, yo, dude, are, are you on TikTok? And then I'm kind of like, uh, what do you mean? And he's like, are, are, you, are you like a TikTok guy? Like LA Minute, LA in a Minute. And I was like, yeah, like, okay. And look, like, not to sound like a dick, but yeah, I get recognized and it's, it is cool. I, I like it and I, I am appreciative and I try to acknowledge people because again, like whenever, you know, since I was a kid, I used to get baseball players autographs and stuff like that. I go up to people and it's cool and you want them to be nice and like, it's really neat. And like shout out to Dave Winfield and Dale Murphy when I was growing up for being two celebs that were like really freaking nice when I, when I like ran into him. Jay Leno was another one, like ran into me so nice. So I always kind of want that that sort of interaction. Somebody takes the time. But again, you're eating dinner. It's weird. And at, at this particular incident, I was at a booth with my family. And I'm talking to the guy. And he's telling me, oh, we love your stuff. And we, we watch your episodes and things like that. And now you got to imagine, right? I'm at the side of the booth where these three gentlemen were behind me, okay? And he kind of comes up to me on the side, right? Like on my right side. I want you to picture this. He's on my right side. I'm looking over that shoulder. My wife and son are across from me. Now we get into a conversation, right? And he's talking about his stuff. He's talking about my stuff. And then he mentions like, oh, like I'm here with a guy who's like on a super big podcast. And the guy I was with is on a super big podcast. And look, I'm being honest with you guys. I want to talk to anybody, but I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to build at that point, at that moment in my head, professionally, I'm like, oh shit, I'm going to network right here. Right? So I turn and I'm still in the booth. I'm still seated. So I turn, but it's like awkward. Like I'm looking like over a booth at these three dudes and we're having this conversation. 
one dude was a photographer, one dude is in this super popular major podcast, and one dude is a military pilot, right? Like a, an Air Force pilot. So I'm talking to all three of them, and look, I'm a talker. I wouldn't have uh, In a Minute with Evan Lovett if I wasn't, right? So I'm making conversation. These guys were cool. That was the thing. They were genuinely cool. Even though I thought it was going to be a short interaction, next thing I know, we're, we're talking for probably... 20 minutes i lost complete track of time but what i also lost track of and this is terrible was my family my son and my wife right and man truth be told i hadn't even thought about him because i'm in this conversation and like even the photographer it turns out is such and such and he knows such and such and the podcast guy is like huge and he hears i have a podcast and he's giving me tips he's giving me experience and the freaking pilot is probably the most interesting guy of all of them because this guy listen i've never served my grandpa my dad's side served in the korean war and I'm not, I, he passed away before I was even born, so I don't even have a connection with him. But I will tell you right now, I have the utmost respect for anybody who serves, whether it's military, police, fire, that shit is hard and it deserves mad respect. And I will literally say a thank you, buy a meal, buy a coffee for anybody that serves. So, so this dude, I, I'm talking to all of them, right? I'm trying to have three conversations and this is going on like 20 minutes and I haven't even thought about my wife and my kid. And that's terrible. It's terrible. My son, who's shy, he's shy. He's a shy kid. He comes up to me. He grabs onto my leg and he's like nine years old. So he's like getting bigger. But he like grabs onto my leg like a little dude. And I'm like, oh shit. Uh, if my son's even like, yo, I kind of need your attention. <sighs> Look back at my wife and she's She's awesome. She's incredible. She's understanding. I've put her through so much, especially early in our relationship. Talk about a saint that shit probably shouldn't be with me and is. And uh, babe, I, I love you for staying with me. But like the thing is, in this exact moment, it kind of hits me where I'm like, oh my God, um, I haven't even addressed her. I haven't introduced her. And we're talking 20 minutes. That's some serious time. So it's like, what do I do in that situation, right? I don't want to neglect my family. That's the word. That's the most important people in my life, right? And these people in the other booth, maybe they're fans and that's dope. And maybe they can help my career and that's awesome. But like, dude, your wife and your kid, it doesn't get more important than this. And it's like, what do I do in that situation, right? Like, I do like being recognized. I do like networking. I do. I want to talk to people. I want to meet people. I'm interested in everything and everybody. But it's difficult to like prioritize. And it, at that moment, you know, I realized it a little bit. And I didn't even realize the magnitude of it until I kind of see my wife's face. And look, we've been married a long time now, right? Like I like to think we're young. She's young. We've been married 17 years. That's a long time, um, but you get to know somebody and you get to know their quirks, their looks, their, their just, just a glance, the way their eyes move, you know? And I was like, oh shit. And I knew it and I knew it was my bad. And I'm like, 
you know, sort of wrap up the conversation. My wife's such a good sport. We had a great rest of the dinner. She was totally cool about it. But like, and I want to make everybody feel involved. I want to make everybody feel special and included. And I just didn't. And it like weighed on me. I, I, I need, and it's, here's the thing. She's cool as fuck. She would have talked. She would have joined the conversation. It would have been awesome, but I'm just leaving her on the outskirts. So like it pained me. And it's something that I just needed to get out of my chest, get off my chest, I should say. It's it's tough to prioritize in the moment. It's tough to be present on all levels and like something like that. It's been coming up and it's weighing on me because, you know, look, it is neat to be acknowledged for the hard work that I put in for the information and research that I provide, like I am shining a positive light on this culture, on this world. And I think that that's something that's, that's got a lot of value, but it's tough to really keep that balance and stay grounded and know what the priorities are because above all else, man, you don't have your family, you don't have your health, you don't have anything. So I just wanted to get that off my chest and that's, that's my therapy. I appreciate you guys listening. Anybody DM me thoughts. Let me know what you think about that. Because again, like at the time I'm caught up in the moment, but then just looking back, you're like, oh my God, I'm kind of between these two worlds. Not to use like this George Costanza, anybody that used to watch Seinfeld. I don't know if there's any Seinfeld fans out there. I was a huge Seinfeld fan. George Costanza, his world's colliding. It was that in that instance except I wasn't even conscious of it or maybe subconsciously that's what I was trying to do is keep my world separate, but you have to. My goal, my dream is to have them seamlessly intertwined. I want my wife involved in what I'm doing. And she has a great career. She's awesome at what she does, right? She, she Again, she's an interior designer and she's badass. She has her own business. She's thrived for more than 10 years. She's kicking ass. But like get her involved and especially my son, man, he's at this awesome age where he's playing baseball. I'm the coach of his team. I want to be present. I want to be there for him. But like at that moment, I wasn't. And honestly, that that weighs on me. So, I mean, thank you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate that. So as we close out here on In a Minute with Evan Lovett, I want to tell people about how the podcast is put together, right? So I wait till everybody's asleep on Sunday night. Walk across the L.A. River. Yes, I walk. And people in L.A. do walk. And look, the L.A. River is a concrete channel. It's, it's probably, I don't know, 50 yards wide. But I do walk over the L.A. River, and I do appreciate that. Over to the I Am Studios, which is five minutes away. So convenient. So awesome. Right here in L.A. Pour myself a drink. And I just use this microphone as therapy. I thank you for listening. I appreciate everybody that tuned into the first episode, the second episode, another episode drops next week. We're going to keep this going. We're going to continue evolving. I need your feedback. I want your feedback. That's the way that we're going to grow together. I'm going to have some awesome guests on. We've been booking guests. It's going to be fun. So let me just tell you, get ready for the next episode next week on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.